Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to Acts chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 17 where we left off, and I've entitled our Bible study today, Great Progress Always Brings Great Opposition. Great progress is always matched with great opposition, and I'm sure you've noticed this in your own life, that just when you think things are going to get better, they can get really worse very quickly. As it's once been said, it often gets darkest right before the dawn. And in the life of the early church here, we see that happening. There's great progress, purity, unity, the the magnificent supernatural work of God returns to the church after the hypocrisy is dealt with. But then right away, there's more opposition, more difficulty, more trouble that comes. Notice with me in verse 17 now. It says, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, which we met in earlier studies. These are, the Sadducees would refer to the religious rulers that are separate from God. These are people that are not born again, and using terms today, these are people that are not born again, that have no real relationship with God, but they have all the spiritual authority as if they did. That's where they are. They are separate from Jesus. They have rejected Messiah. As we'll learn from Peter, if you want to jump down to verse 30, Peter will tell them straight up, God, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from whom you murdered. These are the murderers of Jesus making religious decisions for the people that want to just follow God. That's who they are, the Sadducees. The very wealthy, they became wealthy on the backs of the people. They come and notice they were filled with indignation, verse 17. Circle that word indignation. It has the idea of anger, but more so some of your Bibles might have translated this word jealousy. And I just want you to mark some of the emotions we're dealing with, with these unbelievers, religious rulers, that they're dealing with their emotions and they're jealous and angry. And you know, when you have jealousy and insecurity going together, you'll see a progression. I'll point out some of the emotions that are at play here of why they would come against a genuine work of God. But here it's enough to say that they're angry, but they're more, more their anger is rooted in jealousy. Notice verse 18. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So in response to the work of the Holy Spirit on the earth, in response to people getting healed, in response to the church growing, the religious rulers are upset, and they take the apostles, they lay hands on them, which implies forcefully grab them, throw them in prison. And that's the reward for the disciples. Great progress came with great opposition. And when you're obeying God, when you're doing what's right, When you're making choices that are honoring God, you can just expect for people around you not to be happy about it, that there's going to be a response. Not everyone is going to see your obedience to Jesus the way that you do, and some may even come against you for it. 
And if you're taking notes, again, in verse 17, you'd like to write in your Bibles, you can just write over the verse. This is the second real persecution of the early church. And I mean, the early church is only months old at this time. There's a little bit of debate on how old, but let's put it into months. And the apostles, you know, this is a new believer church for the most part. And the apostles, they're not much older in Christ either. You know, they spent three years with Jesus, but they're just a few months away from the baptism of the Holy Spirit themselves. So this is all new to them. They're doing what they believe God wants them to do. They're they're moving forward. They're obeying. They're their hands and feet of Christ. And already now, they are thrown into prison. This is the answer of the world. Church, I don't want you to be surprised that the the church doesn't have favor in the world. There's so much, the church so much wants to have favor in the world, but the way our culture is going is going to be very hostile. The culture is going to be hostile to followers of Jesus Christ. The culture is going to hate the morality and the teaching and the truth and the affirmation of what's right, what's real, what, what God's heart as our creator. There's going to be a hostility that's going to grow and grow until the coming of the Lord. So much so that we live out the very prophetic word of God when he says, when Paul writes to Timothy and he says, there there will be perilous times in the last days. Perilous times. And already in the early church, they're beginning to see hostility. And it shouldn't surprise us. There is no comparison to what we see here between a follower of Christ who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit and just loves Jesus I I would phrase it, there's no comparison between the warm presence of the Spirit and the coldness of rituals, rules, and religion. We see it right here. Those that are in religious power, they're going to forcefully press themselves against what God is already doing in their life. But there's something to be said about Peter and the apostles just trusting Christ with their lives. Even from the word religion, on some of the origins of the word religion, it can have the definition of binding up or choking out. And of course, there is some generic ways that we can use religion in a positive sense. But in a biblical sense, when you see religion as it compared to relationship, you can see how they want to choke out the very life of the spirit. But it's not going to work. Religion, religious people and religion, man-made religion has always been the church's worst enemy, not the culture. It's, the culture is not the church's worst enemy. It is those that say they represent Christ, but they're always responding in fear, trying to control. And it was the religious that nailed Jesus to the cross, who rewarded perfect love with torture and beating. And just remember this, when things are going well, there's always going to be opposition. Just we watch out for it, don't be surprised by it. Let's move on in our text, verse 19. They're thrown in prison, but, verse 19, at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those who came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, they sent to the prison to have them brought. 
So now the text goes into two different directions. You're going to follow the apostles and what they're doing, and we're going to follow the religious rulers and what they're doing. They're in alternate universes, alternate realities, where the apostles, they are in tune with the Holy Spirit, and they're obeying immediately. The religious rulers, they don't even know what happened. They just show up. You know, they're not even interested. So let's just put the first contrast. The apostles, Peter and the apostles, they care about the people, so they immediately obey what happened. I mean, they got, let's just not overlook the obvious. God broke them out of jail. Isn't that great? God broke them out of jail. Like, so what man tried to do, literally, God broke them out of jail and gave them instruction. An angel appeared, gave them instruction, said, go and preach the gospel. So they did what they were supposed to do. It says right in the next text, when they heard it, they entered a temple early in the morning. Why? Because the apostles cared about what God said, and they cared about the people. They cared about the people. The religious rulers, where are they in the morning? They're not up on the temple ministering to the people. They're not helping. They're, they're what you would call the religious elite. So they're just going to, they're living in a whole new reality. They, they, they want to stop the work of God. And it's very demonstrative. Here they are. They're going to come and let's get everybody together and get the council together. And, and then we'll have our little meeting and we'll destroy this little work. And while, while they're doing that, people that just have their eyes on the Lord, just abiding in Christ, they're loving the people. And it's a super important decision to make. You know, throughout the book of Acts, there's a lot of prison doors open. It's, it's an neat thing that God did in releasing his people. This won't be the first time. But by way of application, I think it's important to understand that God, too, wants to release you from the prison that may be holding you. He wants to break you out of prison. He wants the shackles of the strongholds in your life to be taken away. He wants you to be free from the things that bind you. He wants you to live in the newness of life, to walk in the newness of life, and not be held captive any longer. That by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have been set free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Bible says, there is liberty and there is freedom. And so God is still opening prison doors. Yes, there is battle. There's an ongoing battle. There's a battle between the Spirit and the flesh. There is an onslaught of temptations. But even as the Lord encourages you today, right here, right now, remember, Great and effective doors are open for us, 1 Corinthians 16, 9. But there are many adversaries. The door is open, and he wants to set you free. He wants you to walk in the newness of his life. Now, jot it down if you want. I would encourage you to look at this chapter later on in your Devo life. In 2 Chronicles chapter 14, we are introduced to King Asa. He's one of the good kings. And any of you that have studied kings with us and on into Chronicles, you know they were good kings and they were bad kings. Asa was a good king. Here in 2 Chronicles 14, he takes the leadership of Judah and begins to set things in order and set things straight. He gets rid of all the altars. He starts to deal with the rampant idolatry. He commands the nation to seek the Lord. He is going to take the spiritual authority that he has and he's going to point people to the Lord. He began to build strong, fortified cities. And as Judah was making great progress for the things of God, wouldn't you know it, the nation, at that time Ethiopia, decides to make war with Judah. Judah has about 580,000 semi-soldiers at the time. 
And what they had for weapons were shields and bows. Very primitive, very simple weaponry. Ethiopia, though, at the time, had over a million trained men and over 300 chariots. And I want you to think in the Old Testament, when you think of chariots, I want you to associate that with advanced technology. This was advanced technology weapons of warfare. A simple illustration would be that having chariots like that would be like having tanks today. You're going up against a group of people that have rocks and slingshots with tanks. That's where Asa is. And he is leading the nation and he's making progress and then he's immediately hit with a threat. And it's overwhelming. All of his resources will not be able to meet this threat. And so what does he say? Listen, 2 Chronicles 14, 11. Asa cried out to the Lord. Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you. And in your name, we will go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And I wonder how many listening right now are in that same place. You are that man. You are that woman who has no power. I mean, that's what he, he just have no power. The, the enemy is formidable, overwhelming so. You look at your resources compared to those and you think, what am I going to do? I'm, I have no, no hope. But your hope is in God, not in your resources. And your hope is in God and not in your power. And what man sees, God sees very differently. And like Asa, we want to trust him with the strongholds. We, it's like, I know, I, I've tried to break this my whole life. I can't break it. I can't leave it. I can't stop thinking about it. But God, it is nothing for you. It's nothing for you, God. And I turn to you today. I put my hope, my faith, my trust in you. Do not let man prevail against you. And I love that. And so here they are, broken out of prison. The religious leaders, they now are finding out that they were broken, broke out. Notice uh, in verse 22 now, it says, But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Pause there for a second. Next emotion. They went from indignation now, and now God's showing us behind the scenes that they're also people-pleasing manipulators. They fear the people. Here they are. If you were to see them from the outside, you would say, oh, men of power, men of God, look at them. But inside, because they're disconnected from God, they have the appearance, they have the appearance of being men of God, but inside they're jealous, they're angry, and now we learn they're afraid of the people because they're always there to, yeah, I guess the right way to, to look at them right now is they're always looking for an angle. Oh, if I do this, what if this? And if I do that, they're not trusting in God. They're not looking to God. They're not praying to God. They don't care about God. 
And you're learning about spiritual warfare here. And this could be a whole different Bible study, but behind the scenes, there are always things going on that you and I don't see. God has to reveal it to us. And so don't always, uh, what is that phrase? You know, not everything is what it appears. Not everything is what it appears. There's more than meets the eye, especially in spiritual warfare. So the battle might be look like, oh no, what's going to happen? And they have so much power, but they're really fearful, cowardly. They only care about what they look like. They're, they're, there's so much going on that's going to, on their part now, why you want to take these emotions in your own life, if you brought jealousy in here today, or if you wrestle with the fear of man, or you like to manipulate, any of these things, if you have these in your life, it's very important that you crucify the flesh. You make no provision for the flesh because these emotions will make you and I make bad decisions too. So it's not just them, but we are learning from them. We don't want to make decisions disconnected from God. We don't want to make fleshly, selfish decisions that are wrapped up in our emotions. We want to be led by the Spirit. So now they bring them in. They're fearful of the people. They don't want to be stoned. They're fearful that the people will stone them. It's very interesting. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them. And I wonder if he changed his voice a little bit. Here's what the high priest said. Did we not strictly command you to not teach in this name? I mean, who knows? But he probably threw some trip on them. What's your problem? Didn't we tell you guys? Weren't we gracious with you? Didn't we give you a chance? Didn't we tell you to stop? And then he says, look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Such weakness. Such dishonesty. They're being flat out dishonest here. And they probably don't even realize it. They're self-deceived. They bring him in and trying to threaten them. Notice what Peter does to the threat. He says in verse 29, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now this is a little different, isn't it? Than what he said earlier. Turn a page back to chapter four, verse 19. The first time he stood before them, in the first persecution, what did he say in verse 19? Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. But we can't but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So he's very tactful. When we studied that last time, remember we learned he was very tactful and he's leading them down. I think he's very hopeful and he's wanting to deliver a message to them. He's wanting them to hear the gospel. But now, he, no, no, we're going to obey God, not man. That's just straight up. We're not, th- th- this is the summary. We're going to obey God. And that's why we're out teaching and preaching. And then he gives them the gospel. That's where he turns it around again in verse 30. I mean, these are pretty strong words. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, but him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we're his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Very powerful. He stands his ground. You can't threaten. We've already learned you can't threaten a a follower of Christ. It only makes him stronger, more committed. It's almost like Peter standing there with the gospel. He says, you know, you can throw me in jail. You can beat us. You can do whatever you want to us, but we will not quit. This is what Jesus has for us. This is our life. 
We are dedicated to it. We're, we're not your words, any of the threats, none of that is going to work. And with great boldness, they stand there. But pause there and let's go to verse 33 now. We'll come back to this in a moment as we close. It says, when they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Now, <laughs> we just stopped there for a second. This is where they are. We took counsel to kill them. That's their motive. How do we know this is demonic? The Bible says that the devil himself doesn't come except to kill, steal, and destroy. This is demonic. This is demonic within the realm of perceived religious leadership. And now they want to kill him. That's their, they have no answer, no response, nothing they can do. So here's what we'll do. We'll kill you. But in verse 34, one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law. He was held in high respect by all the people. He commanded them to put the apostles outside just for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutius rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census. He drew away many people after him, but he also perished, and all who obeyed him was dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it's of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So now Gamaliel, this very well-respected rabbi and teacher, and by the way, Gamaliel is most often known as the teacher of Saul of Tarsus. So the wisdom and the knowledge and even the animosity toward the church came from Gamaliel's leadership. So, so Gamaliel is speaking wisdom here, but he too is disconnected from God. Wisdom can come. God's wisdom can come from other voices. And here's wisdom. He says, look, you, if, it's this, if this is of God, you can't stop it. So just understand that. Just leave him alone. Let it play out. Because every other time we saw something not from God, it stopped. And so just let him alone. And it's too bad that his sensitivity and wisdom didn't lead him a little bit farther to the God who gave him that wisdom. But that's all this. It's a good practical. So Gamaliel is giving good practical advice, but not necessarily spiritual. You know, it's not the spiritual advice just because, you know, there's a gathering of people and it doesn't end. I think of cults and false teachers. They might be able to gather a lot of people, but that doesn't make it right. Doesn't make just because a lot of people are following false teachings doesn't make it right. So there's some practicality here, and God's going to use that practicality, but it's not completely spiritually accurate of what Gamaliel is sharing here. But it says in verse 40, they agreed with him, and when they called for the apostles, they beat them and commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Now let's come back to the first episode as they're broken out of prison and they come before this supreme court, this religious supreme court for the second time to give an answer for what's happening. You know, a few things I notice here. First of all, I notice the, the religious rulers don't even ask about what happened at prison. Like, what happened, bro? How did you guys get out of prison? Like, that's a story I want to hear. What happened? Like, we went there, you weren't there, I hear you're in the temple, you, what happened? And not only that, when you guys broke out of prison, you closed the door on the way out. Like, what happened here? They're not even interested. 
because they don't care. They're so caught up in their own agenda that they don't care. They don't care about the people up on the temple. They don't care about the apostles. They don't even care about the supernatural. Like, just tell me how you did it because we want to prevent. Like, they don't care. They're so tunnel visioned on destroying the apostles. They're so upset. They're so jealous, so insecure. They are so, they have an appearance that they, they have appearance that they're godly, but they, they lack the power thereof, as the Bible says. They, they, they are so separate from God here, and Peter's standing before them, not intimidated, not fearful. But before Peter ever gets before them, we have the group of the apostles coming back to getting broke out of prison, right? They, they were broke out of prison in verse 21. They go right to the temple. They obeyed the word of the angel immediately. And if there's anything you want to add to your spiritual life that will accelerate your spiritual growth, it is to learn how to immediately obey God, to immediately obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit, to immediately obey what the Spirit has shown you in his word or in a Bible study, Like this big step of obedience is an important step of your spiritual life, but you get a little intimidated here. If you put yourself in the text, we get a little intimidated. You go, I don't know what I would do if I was standing before the Supreme Court. I hope I would obey. But here, I want you to know that this big step of obedience was preceded by, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of steps of little obedience. It wasn't just the big one. Everyone's afraid of the big one. They're afraid of what might happen. What's going to happen? I don't know what I would do. Well, I don't know what you would do either, but I do know this. If you live a life of steady obedience, you'll be ready for the big one. You'll be ready. Like, I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know how it's going to come. But if you're obedient in the small things, you will have the presence of God for the big things. You, You will be ready. God is preparing you. He's preparing you for what's up ahead. Now, you may be like me, and I would like to know, if, if I feel like I would be more bold in my walk if God would just tell me when the big one's coming. Just tell me, like, okay, if it's going to be Wednesday at 3 o'clock, if it's going to be Wednesday at 3 o'clock, I kind of think I would feel a lot better if I knew exactly when it's coming. But that's not true. If God told me something big was happening on Wednesday at 3 o'clock, that's all I'd be concerned about. And you know what my first question would be? It wouldn't be, oh God, will you be with me? Oh God, will you give me strength? Oh God, will you help me? You know what my big question would be? What's it going to be, God? If it's going to be Wednesday at 3 o'clock, what is it? Tell me what it is, and then I'll be ready. And then let's say God gives me that answer. And say, okay, then how is it going to happen? And I I will badger God with so many questions instead of just humbly trusting God by faith. I don't need to know when it's going to happen, what it's going to be, how it's going to come if I learn to live my life in simple obedience today, right? If I just learn, don't worry about tomorrow, Ed. Okay, Lord, I won't. I won't worry about it. No, because we don't live by answers. We don't live by information. The Bible says in our spiritual life, we live by faith. And so there are some barriers when it comes to immediate obedience. I want you to notice what the apostles didn't do. After broken out of prison, an angel's dispatched to give them directions. Here's a few things they didn't do. Number one, they didn't sit around analyzing the angel's command. 
You know, they didn't sit around going, whoa, wait a minute. This is amazing. Well, look at this. Look at this. The door's open. Is it really open? Hey, close it. We might get in trouble. What did the angels say? Like, they didn't sit around talking about it. They didn't sit around analyzing it. Secondly, they didn't wait around for further instructions. They got what they needed to know, and they left. They didn't sit around going, wait a minute. What did he say? Are you sure? What part of the temple? Should we go to the east? Should we go to the west? And who should speak? Should it be you, Peter? Like, none of that. They got a command, doors were open, and they left. Thirdly, I noticed, they also didn't wander around. They didn't wander around doing half of what the angel said and then waiting for other. They, they did, they returned immediately, full obedience. Next thing we read, they're in the morning doing what God told them to do through the angel. That's what we read. That's what you want to see in the pattern in our own lives. That's what our desire is. A.W. Tozer puts it best here. I think he comments on this really well. And if, if you are looking right now in your spiritual walk for somebody to push you along, to exhort you, Tozer's the guy to do it. He just has a way of saying things right, but super strong. So if you don't like this, you can get mad at Tozer. He's in heaven and talk to him there. Here's what he said. Ready? And I quote, the Christian can hope for no manifestation of God while he lives in a state of disobedience. Take that. How can you expect to experience the power and the presence of God when you are currently living in a state of disobedience? And, he says, let a man or a woman refuse to obey God on some clear point. Let him set his will stubbornly to resist any commandment of Christ and the rest of his religious activities will be wasted. He may go to church for 50 years to no profit. He might tithe, he might preach, he might teach, he might sing or even write until he gets too old to navigate and have nothing but ashes at the last because of his life of disobedience. Powerful stuff. So if that's such a big deal, let me share with you three things that I often see as a substitute for immediate obedience. I find that many times Christians will often substitute for immediate obedience, at least three things, these three things. There are many more, but at least these three things. Number one, I see believers responding with partial obedience. Partial obedience. What I mean by that is that I see believers often giving a clear command, but then they only do the things that are easy or the things that keep them in control in some way. So I commend those of you today that have made the really hard decisions to respond in immediate obedience, even if you didn't want to. God is gonna bless that. Partial obedience, partial obedience is not really gonna get you where you want. And now you say, but Ed, isn't partial obedience better than um, no obedience at all? You know, I think you could probably make a case for that, that if you take a step toward God, um, instead of away from God, for sure, that's much more beneficial. But if God has shared something, don't hold back on God. We've already learned what it was like with Ananias and Sapphira. We already learned what happens when you hold back. So partial obedience. Number two, I also find people that respond to a clear command of God with procrastination. <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask for anybody to raise your hands if this is you. You'd probably delay raising your hand anyway if this is you, but procrastination. This is where we put things off until it's too late, and then things get so much worse and so much. Like, if you think obedience is hard now, and you put it off, do you think it's going to get easier later? 
No, act now where you have a clear word from God. Don't procrastinate. Just do it. And let the Lord, let the Lord sort out the results. And a third thing I see immediate obedience replaced with is this constant analyzation of what God said. Or another way of thinking it is you're overthinking. You're overthinking it. And so when you overthink it, it's almost like you analyze it so much that we can analyze the Holy Spirit and faith right out of our lives. And we can overthink what we're clearly being told or clearly being seen and just receive it for what it is and act on it. Again, trusting God with the result. Now, there's a lot more, but these are most common, I see. And these false substitutes, they breed a very slow death to the effectiveness of the church and individual believers. And here is Peter now. They immediately obey. They go into the temple. The religious rulers are upset about it. And notice in verse 28 now the accusations. Listen to these accusations. The first one is, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Now, wouldn't it be great if somebody accused you of that? Wouldn't it be great if somebody accused our church? I can't believe you guys. You you know, whatever God you serve, you know, whatever. I can't believe you guys. You guys have filled the Denver metro area with the gospel. Now, I have to say, I've never been accused of that. I've never had our church accused of that. And what that tells me is that there's more work to be done, more opportunity for the gospel. I've never been accused of that. But it'd be great. Somebody goes, you know what? And now I have been, I have had this accusation. You know, it would be better if you weren't here. I've heard that before, and that may be a part of that, but I would like to see, I think God has put his church in this community to do exactly what Peter and the apostles are doing, obeying Jesus. You know, a life of an obedient church makes a big difference in, their, in our community. It's huge. God's mission in and through you is to fill Aurora, Denver, Littleton, Highlands Ranch, Colorado with the gospel. That is why you're breathing right now. Why you're breathing right now is to bring pleasure to God through being an obedient follower of Christ, abiding in Christ, living out his life in you, trusting him, fighting the good fight of faith, not not giving provision for your flesh, but rather responding in immediate obedience. May the Lord help us to live this out and one day we get that accusation. You have filled this area with the gospel. Yes, we have. And we're going to keep doing it. This is what Jesus has told us to do. And then secondly, look at the accusation in verse 28. He said, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. I don't know a better way of saying this. It just came to me. I don't know how best to say this, but I would call this a very convenient memory for sin. This is a very convenient memory that they have, whoever's speaking in that religious elite there, to justify their own sin. Because this couldn't be farther from the truth. This couldn't be farther from the truth. And it reminded me on a more personal level the how, you, you know how uncomfortable it is when there's something in your life that you value. Uh, for example, in following Christ, like maybe you value your honesty. Like you just are an honest person. You like to be known as an honest person. You want to be known that you're not a liar. And that's how you live your life. It would be from uh, from all observations, you are a very honest person. And then wouldn't you know it, 
the enemy would send someone your way to call you a flat-out liar. And that hurts double, doesn't it? Because number one, not only are you not a liar, but number two, that's something that you pride. That's something that you hold on to. That's your identity. I'm an honest person. And so what does the Lord do? Sometimes we can, uh, we can adapt ourselves to things that can be idolatrous. He doesn't want us to be known as an honest person. He wants us to be known as a Christ follower. He wants us to be known hidden in Christ. He, we don't want to be known by the attributes that he gives us. We want to be known by him. And so it does hurt where, you know, you're like looking at it, you go, man, you, the very thing you are doing, you're accusing me of doing, and I'm not doing it. And it just, it just freaks you out. You're just like, oh, and you get all defensive, and then the, then the discussion goes away, and the enemy wins. And that's what's happening here. You go, Ed, how do you see that? Well, listen to the accusation. Is Peter... And the disciples, are they wanting blood to be on anybody's head? Yes or no? Just talk to me. No, they don't. They're not. What are they doing? They're obeying God, preaching and teaching the gospel. Their whole heart is the exact opposite. They want people, they want people to be forgiven and saved. Isn't that what Peter said? God is exalted, verse 31, to his right hand. He's the prince and the savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's his whole, this is the exact, they're doing the exact opposite here. But these guys are accusing them. Well, you're trying, to, you're trying to blame us for the crucifixion. You're trying to bring his blood. We're going to have to answer for his crucifixion. And this is where the convenient memory is because we actually have it recorded in the scriptures what many of these guys said when they killed Jesus. Did you know that? Turn over to Matthew chapter 27. This is, this is such, again, knowing spiritual warfare, like you just, this is so deceptive, so untrue. But if you're not careful, it could touch and tap a part of you that you really value. And, and then you get all defensive and upset. And <clears throat> then you get in the flesh and all make things worse. Look at this, Matthew 27. Something Peter doesn't do here. He just keeps his eyes on the Lord and speaks the truth. Go to verse 25, would you please? Then you can cross-reference when you get back to Acts 5. Listen to what they said in verse 25. And all the people answered. No doubt the religious rulers were involved. We don't know how many, but let's just say it's the spirit of the atmosphere. All the people answered and said, <clears throat> just mark this, his blood be on us and our children. His blood, the whole scenario. Then they released Barabbas to them, and when he scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Wow. Not only did they ask for his blood, but they said, go ahead and put it on our kids too. And now... Because they have no moral compass, no life of God inside of them, what happens? Now they're looking at the guys that are just trying to do good, serve the community. You're trying to bring this man's blood on us. And it wasn't true. They're so upset, so self-deceived, as we saw in verse 33, they took counsel to kill. They just can't deal with it. And they want to kill these men. This is a very difficult time in the early church. Great progress with great opposition. Of course, Gamaliel steps in, stops the murder. They were going to do it all over again of what they did to Jesus. Instead, in verse 40, they agree with him. 
and they called for the apostles and they beat them. That was their response. We're going to beat you for doing what God told you to do. And they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and then they let them go. Well, that really worked last time, didn't it? Verse 41. And so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I'm inspired by these men and the women that were with them. I'm inspired. I don't know that I would immediately rejoice and have this kind of response. I'd probably be upset. I know in our very divisive culture today, when there's any kind of persecution on the church, the church, oh no, I can't believe it. They're going to go protest. They're going to be upset. They're going to go fight with the weapons of the world. But this response is, they didn't fight. They didn't fight with the weapons of the world. What did they do? They accepted it from the Lord. They rejoiced and they kept on going. And that's what God blessed. You're a believer today right now, in part because of their response to persecution. Persecution, as much as it hurts and it's painful, is really good for the church. It's really good. It, it takes away those things that make us comfortable. It takes away those things that, that we aren't pressing in anymore. It, it gives us back to perspective and reality. It's not fun. I don't like spiritual warfare. I don't like people lying. I don't like people, I don't like any of it. That's why it would be hardy, I think, even today for me to rejoice. I'm the kind of guy that would probably be upset and go, oh, wait a minute, the Bible says to rejoice. Okay, Lord, I rejoice. And you're just battling like, no, God, this is good for me. What you allow in my life will ultimately be worked together for my good. It may not be good, but I'm going to learn not to look to my circumstances, but I'm going to learn to rejoice in you. I'm going to learn to take the life that you've given me in you. I'm going to learn to get my eyes firmly fixed on you. Why? So I can do what God put me on the planet for, to teach and preach. Remember, we've learned already, teaching is for believers. Preaching is for unbelievers. So the church needed discipleship and development, so they're teaching. The world needs the gospel, so they're preaching. And they were doing what they were on the planet to do. And it's important that we all learn that we are on the planet for the sake of eternal things. And, and this is the thing, this is where I think it's super important for us as a church, is that we need to learn to lead with love. I don't just mean leadership. I mean, our first step into someone's life should be a step of love. We should lead with love. We should value the person in front of us, created in the image of God. We should lead with love. I, I remember a book I read many years ago when I was first studying how to teach and how to improve my teaching, one of the authors said this, and I'm probably quoting it incorrectly because it just came to me today, but he, he said something like this. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I'm like, wow. I remember what a, what a dramatic addition that was into my life. They don't care. People don't care how much you know, but they really want to know that you care. And it reminded me of what Jesus said. Jesus said, you want to sum up the law? Here you go. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then what? Love your neighbor. And so when we lead with love, it opens the door for teaching and preaching. It opens the door for relationship. 
It opens the door to build a bridge into someone else's life, to learn their story, to hear it, to receive it, to understand where they're coming from so that we might step in very carefully and gently led by the Holy Spirit to be able to help them with what's going on in their life or to share with them the love of God or to, we've got to lead with love, church. That's, that's, that's the way it is. We've got to lead with love. We, we have to be able to stand in the culture we're in right now. And, and as we've seen it time and time again, it's going to be this way for months and months and months into the future. The graphic that's behind me, the graphic that gets posted, we need to be the church, be the church. All you need to do is be the church. And it reminded me too, as I was thinking about the role of pastor teacher, right? If you look in Ephesians chapter four, the role pastor teacher goes together and pastor comes first. And that really has significance because a pastor, another word for pastor is shepherd. And you want to know what the shepherd looks like. You open the Bible and you start learning about Psalm 23, what your shepherd's like. And and then you think, well, wait a minute. Who is the shepherd being referred to in Psalm 23? Could it be that Jesus is being prophesied about in Psalm 23 so that when he comes in the gospel of John, he says, I am the good shepherd? And how did Jesus lead? He led exactly as a shepherd, caring and concerned for the flock, cared and concerned for those that were lost and hurting, care and concerned those that were, he came to seek and to save the lost. And so as we close up Acts chapter five and we see all this conflict and we see the religious rulers and the, like, like God would just have us to say, okay, I know there's gonna be opposition. I know there's gonna be warfare but let it not damper my love, my love for God and my love for my community. It wasn't, the, even the religious rulers got it wrong a little bit. They didn't, they didn't fill Jerusalem with doctrine before they filled Jerusalem with love. And they're standing there saying, I'm not even loving my life more than I love my Jesus and you who he died for, right? Because he, he said it really hard. You guys murdered Jesus, but he still came to save and he still came to forgive sins. And on always being open for the Spirit of God to use his love to reach others. So Father, we know that it is easier to say than to do at times. But we pray for your Spirit to help us as we ourselves face opposition or persecution or uncomfortable circumstances because of our commitment to you. We too, God, need exactly what the apostles have, that steadfast commitment, that affirmation of your love for us. Your word says that we love you, why? Because you first loved us, and we receive that love today. We appreciate it. We desire, God, to have the fullness of your spirit among us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.